Lord, I just thank you that we can come here today. Thank you can, that we can uh, worship you in public, in a building of our own, that uh, we have that freedom in this country. Lord, I pray that you would guide my words in this sermon. Lord, I pray that your words would be spoken and not mine. And those words that are mine and not your intent, Lord, I just pray that, uh, that those would be minimized while your words are maximized. Um, that, uh, that those listening both here in person and online uh, would hear your words, that, you're, that you would guide them, that you would open their hearts. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, awesome and powerful. Amen. So uh, Friday, pastor calls me and says, hey, um, what's the title of your sermon? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> no clue. So you get Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. The second half of uh, that first chapter of Malachi, uh, pastor spoke on the first half uh, last week, and this kind of has the same thoughts. That's why it'd probably be in the same chapter, right? There's no divider there. Um, but yeah, just trying to think of a title or even an introduction to this uh, sermon was tough for me. Uh, there's uh, Malachi to me is a is a difficult book. It's you know it's one of the minor prophets. I haven't really done much study on it. I learned last week that David Aronzi's group, the Bible study group, has done a study on it, which uh, if you know who attends that group, that's intimidating because <laughs> they are a very knowledgeable group of Christians, uh, mature Christians who, who, who dive deeply in the books that they study. And uh, just to put a plug in for the Acts study that they're doing right now, it's, it's a great uh, Sunday school class. Um, I also want to apologize for those people who like following along in their Bible. We are going to be jumping around a lot. I uh, uh, wanted to make sure that any comments that I have on the material for this sermon is then backed up by a, uh, a Bible verse scripture itself. And so we go... I'm referencing several Bible verses in this, in this uh, sermon here today. Um, one thing that kind of also inspires me is that I mentioned it in a, in a meeting recently we had with the elders that, uh, that I read an article or heard a, heard a talk on the book of Revelation. And there's over 300 allusions or references to other parts of the Bible. In, in fact, almost all of the book of Revelation is parts of uh, the rest of the Bible. There's very little that is alluded to, at least, that isn't part of Psalms, Isaiah, uh, Zechariah, um, a whole bunch of those uh, um, prophets, mostly. So that's kind of interesting. And one day I would really like to <laughs> be able to write a sermon that has that much allusions where it's almost all Scripture. This is not that, though. <laughs> That, that's going to take a long time to put, it, put together to actually make it coherent. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned, the book of Malachi is, is kind of a rough book to read. It's a, it's a book about judgment of the people of that time, of the, of the Jewish people of that time. And uh, it 
reads a lot, if you've read the book of Malachi, it reads a lot like an argument between a parent and their teenager, right? Where the parent is like, hey, you haven't been doing this. And the, and the kid's like, what? Prove it. <laughs> okay, here's, you know, here's a list of things. And that's kind of how the first part of the chapter goes, right? Uh, where God says, hey, I love you. And the Israelites are like, what are you talking about? You don't love us. And then God goes through, hey, I've, I've taken care of you guys. You know, and that sounds a lot familiar if you're a parent. <laughs> you don't love me. Well, I put a roof over your head. I feed you. Do your laundry. <laughs> you have no wants or you have no needs and very little wants. So how can you say that I don't love you? So the second part of the chapter is very much along the same, same lines because it's basically God saying, well, how have you shown that you love me? You haven't shown that you've loved me to the, to the, to the Jewish people. And it's, he talks about honor, but that's really what it comes down to is the love part of it. So, um, of course, then they're denying it. Um, and God has to use specific examples and then kind of lay down the consequences of what uh, the lack of honor or love would be. So we'll start, go ahead and uh, start in verse 6. And it says, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord God Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? So again, following that same pattern of, how? We're not showing contempt. And... Yeah, God is first saying, you know, I haven't been given any honor here. I deserve it, don't I? And the, specifically, the priests of all people aren't really taking God that seriously, giving him the respect that he deserves. And that's kind of their job, right? To be the public figures of God, especially at this point in time in history, is to be the people out in front that say, you know, this, this is how you worship God. This is how you follow God. And... Uh, you know, that's, that's a job that really they should be taken pretty seriously considering documented history in the Bible. Uh, one example is in Numbers chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, you have Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their uh, censers, put fire in them, and added incense. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of the people, I will be honored. So yeah, God, Nadab and Abihu, they knew that it was their job to light fire and burn incense uh, to God. That was their priestly duties. But God had given very specific directions on how to do that, and they didn't follow it. Mainly, they were supposed to light it with God's eternal fire, not, uh, not strange fire is what God calls it. Exactly what that is, I won't go into, but uh, that was wrong. And they were punished very harshly for it, especially in our modern sentiment, right? Be put to death immediately, and a horrible death at that, just for a little bit of disobedience. I mean, it, it could have even been 
uh, a lack of just not thinking about it. Just light, a, light up your sensors and burn some incense because that's what you're supposed to do. But it also shows God's very, where how he considers sin so important. And especially for priests who are supposed to be the public figures, again, in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And they were dishonoring God in front of all the people. And if the priests were doing that, then how could the people be expected to do that, to honor God? So similarly, in First Samuel, you have Eli's sons who are priests. And they were dishonoring God as well by using their own position to, as their uh, personal benefit. So it says in 1 Samuel 2.17, The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And let's remember that Lord's offering with contempt, because here in a little bit we'll talk about that. But uh, later when God was speaking to Samuel, or through Samuel as a prophecy against Eli's sons, we have the popular verse in 1 Samuel 2.30, which ends, Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. And for those of you unfamiliar with the story of Eli's sons, the continuation of the prophecy through Samuel was that they would die on the same day. And that came true uh, not long after where uh, Eli's sons took the Ark of the Covenant more as a good luck charm into battle against the Philistines. They didn't ask God, should we be fighting against the Philistines? They just said, oh, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant, God will be with us and we will win this battle. And it ended up in a total disaster, a defeat against the Philistines. Many Israelites killed, including Eli's two sons. The Ark of the Covenant uh, was then in enemy's hands for a while too, which ended up not being so good for the Philistines. But, uh, you know, that, that's one of those things where God was saying, I'm not being honored here. And I'm going to take the dishonor of having my people with my Ark of the Covenant defeated to make a point here. And then I'll make a point to say, I need honor, or I'm going to receive the honor due to me with the following events that happened to the Philistines who were not showing proper honor to God uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. So both in our passage in Malachi and then in 1 Samuel, God uses the word honor and contempt or honor and disdain as opposites. And when I read that, I kind of go, well, you know, I don't, I don't see those as opposites necessarily. I think of honor as you place something in high regard, uh, you place uh, it in um, a lot of respect, reverence, and distinction. And the opposite of that, I would kind of put as low regard, uh, ambivalence, apathy. It's more passive, right? And I think of like contempt and disdain as, as very strong emotions, uh, similar to hate, right? So I just kind of think of that as kind of something to keep in mind. I thought it was interesting that, that God would use those such strong words for the opposite of honor. Uh, I don't think of dishonor as very, as necessarily really active and, and angry. It could be done uh, passively. Uh, don't know much more to say about that other than it might be something to keep in mind as we continue to talk about honor. So back to our text. And of course, of course the priests reply, why have we done this? You know, or how have we done this? 
And so God tells them, by offering defiled food on my altar, the same as, uh, as what I mentioned before. And, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? God's kind of asking a rhetorical question here, right? Because these are priests that work at the temple. They should have been trained or, or obviously have been trained in, the, in how the sacrificial system should work. And specifically in Leviticus, which is named after the Levites or the priestly tribe on how to perform the sacrificial system, Leviticus 22, 20 through 23, and then also in Deuteron- Deuteronomy 15, 21, blind, lame, and diseased animals are specifically forbidden to be used as sacrifices. So back to our passage, God says, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord God, or the Lord Almighty. So beyond the fact that these animals are forbidden explicitly in the law uh, given to Moses, uh, God kind of hits the practical side too, right? And says, you know, if you pay taxes with this, would that be accepted? No, it'd just be rejected on the spot. So what makes the Israelites or the priests in, in particular think that that would be okay to... Uh, sacrifice blemish animal, blemished animals to God. How, how would, why would you expect that God would accept something when we humans wouldn't even accept it as having any value? So verse 10, uh, Pastor hit on a little bit last week, and it says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. So yeah, this is an idea of where these priests should know that these animals are no good. They're not going to be accepted by God. They're not going to serve the purpose that they're supposed to serve. So God's just lamenting, saying, well, why don't you priests just shut the doors? Say, nope, not going to take any sacrifices until you bring the right stuff. Because that's what really should be happening. But they're not. And if they're not holding the people accountable to that as themselves as priests, then of course the people aren't going to be following that. These priests, again, are, the, are out in the public view, and they should be the, the shining examples of what uh, holding people accountable and showing what God desires for things to happen. But they also have kind of a, a, a selfish incentive for accepting these sacrifices. And that's because in Numbers 18, 8 through 10, we're told that God directed the priests to get their food from, food from certain portions of the sacrifices. And that's because the Levites, the, the tribe of Israel that uh, were the priests, were not granted an, an inheritance of any land in the promised land. And so then they were uh, forced to depend on God and depend on the people for their food. They weren't able to grow their own food. They weren't able to uh, have the land to have any livestock. And so they, were, they had to take their food from certain portions of the sacrifices. 
and wholly dependent and trusting on God. But if they really didn't have the trust in God like they should, then you can see that it'd be kind of a choice of, well, we can accept these sacrifices the way they are because that's what we're going to get, or we can go hungry. And we don't want to go hungry and starve to death, so we're just going to accept what we can get. So not only is that a, a dishonor to God by accepting those sacrifices, but it's also a showing of a lack of trust in God from the very people who should be showing the most trust. Again, just a poor example. So God continues to call out the priests for wrongdoing later on in the book of Malachi. So we're going to stop here for the subject today and allow uh, pastor to continue <laughs> and have some material to talk about uh, in subsequent Sundays. Um, but let's look at, I thought it'd be good to look and see what, at least I would think, of a good example of what a sacrifice should be like and who better to have a, as an example than a man who was called a man after God's own heart. So in 2 Samuel 24, 22 through 24, we have Arauna said to David, Let my lord king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arauna, gives all this to the king. Arauna said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arauna, No, I insist in paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David certainly had his faults. I mean, that's, that's fairly common uh, in talking about David. But we, use him, but we can use this as an example of an offering that I think the heart is what, was re what really mattered there, right? There was no comment about whether these oxen were, uh, were blemish-free. I would, I would venture to say they weren't uh, lame or blind because they were being used actively to do work. But still, what mattered most is that David said, I'm not going to sacrifice something that doesn't cost me anything. So you can, you can imagine at this time in Israel's uh, history where you have this shepherd or, or just random Jewish person checking out his flock and saying, hmm, you know what? He found that animal, right? It's having a hard time keeping up with the flock, maybe a little bit old, starting to be lame, like, like uh, having a hard time seeing, getting food for itself, finding water for itself not really going to provide a lot of value to the owner anymore. And it even might be a little bit gross. So you're like, man, we need to put this animal down, but I don't want to eat it. <laughs> Yuck. So you say, okay, well, hey, those, those priests at the temple, they take anything. So, so let's go take it to the Lord's temple, to God's temple, and at least get some credit for it with God. And that was acceptable. So I know that there's some symbolism, well, not some symbolism, a lot of symbolism with uh, where God required a pure animal that had no blemishes, a healthy animal for sacrifices in the, for the Old Testament sacrificial system and how that is a symbol of Jesus being the only worthy sacrifice for our sins. 
and uh, him being the only human free of sin and those spiritually, spiritually spotless and pure. But I don't think in this Old Testament passage, God is necessarily concerned about the quality of the animals that are being offered as sacrifices. I think it's much more about the heart attitude that it reflects. Whether God is honored in our actions is more a reflection of how much we value God. So a good example of this is the first king of Israel, Saul, where he was told to completely wipe out the Amalekites, which Pastor mentioned last week as well. But also part of completely wiping out the Amalekites was to take out all the livestock too, just kill them. And instead, Saul brought back much of the best uh, livestock as plunder. And then when questioned about it, he uses the excuse, well, I was going to sacrifice it to God. Isn't that great? And instead of uh, praise, he gets rebuked by God through his prophet Samuel again. In Samuel 15:22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So God knew Saul's motivation was not to honor God. It was selfish ambition is why he kept all those animals. And there would be no honor in God in sacrificing those animals, even if the animals were without blemish, because they were obtained in direct disobedience of God's commands. So back to our passage. We'll finish it out. I didn't know how to separate this up, but uh, we'll have to come back to, a couple, to it a couple of times. Um, Starting in verse 11, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Yeah, all examples of pretty much a low uh, opinion of God, dishonor. Uh, back to the verse, when you bring injured, lamed, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock, vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So this is kind of a good place, I think, to transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And if you've noticed, I've used strictly Old Testament up until this point because I wanted to kind of ground the foundation in the knowledge and the revelation of God that had so far been revealed at this time in uh, history, in Israel's history. Uh, but this, this now, God is actually talking about the future. He's saying, my name will be great among the nations. It will be. And uh, especially in verse 11 where he says, my name will be great among the nations. And then he has a, says a phrase and then he bookends it with, my name will be great among the nations. That's the key thing that he's trying to, uh, to say right there. And uh, so he's talking about the future. He's going to be his honor. And also in this whole section right here, God is 
kind of saying, well, if I'm not going to get my honor from you, the Jewish people, well, I'm going to go somewhere else and get the honor that's due me. And I think that this is a prophetic statement talking about the New Testament and the church age that we're now in. Because where else or when else in the history of Israel was the majority of the people who honor God, who follow God, who call themselves God's people, are not an ethnic uh, group, are not in a small country that is bordering the River Jordan. Instead, we're a people uh, across all nations. What is it? I have it written down here. Across every nation, tribe, and tongue, to reference Revelation 7-9, God's people is spread, is spread throughout the whole world now. So I would say that that's a prophetic statement that is fulfilled in this time period of the church. So, in between those two bookends of my name will be great among the nations, we have from where the sun rises to where it sets. Just a, something to note is that the word where versus when. We always think of sunrise to sunset as dawn to dusk, but this is more from east to west, the whole world. And then uh, the next statement is, every, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. So if we're talking about, well, incense and pure offerings, well, that's, that's Old Testament uh, words, right? But if we're talking about New Testament time period, and this is being a prophecy, it'd probably be good to figure out what the New, New Testament authors considered incense and offerings or pure offerings. And I found that in Revelation 5.8 and Hebrews 13.15 through 16. So Revelation 5.8 is... When he, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp, and they were holding golden, holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So incense is the prayers of God's people. And then Hebrews thirteen fifteen through 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we have the sacrifices are praise, do good, and share with others. And I don't want to go into too much detail of each one of those, because you really you could spend a whole sermon on each one of those subjects. But I thought it would be good to just briefly touch on each one. Um, what I tried to do is just have a single verse that I thought kind of summed up specifically how each one of these prayer, uh, praise, doing good, and sharing with others could bring honor to God because that's what we're kind of focused on here in, in, here in Malachi and then also with this, uh, this prophecy here that God will be honored among the nations. So when we talk about prayers, how does that show, or when do prayers honor God? And I think uh, it's when we pray seeking God's will in all things instead of our selfish desire. That would be in James 4.3, when you ask, 
you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that when you or that you may spend what you get on your pleasures and then you also have 1 John 5:14 through 15 this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we will know that we have what we asked of him and also it's honoring to God when we pray when we've resolved conflict with others and confess our own sins. A uh, quick verse for that would be Mark eleven twenty four through 25. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So praise, how does praise honor God? Uh, by definition, <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of just acknowledging who God is, right? So we're, we're saying, God, you are love, all-powerful, is the creator of the universe. He's justice or just. Those are all praises to him. So Romans includes a reference on how worship, which is very similar to praise, uh, is tied directly to the Old Testament sacrificial system and gives us more than just the fruit of the lips of those who are of the saints. So Romans 12, 1 through 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not confirm or conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So how can doing good honor God? Well, that's, again, a little bit more difficult because doing good is just following God's commands, and following God's commands is honoring to him almost by definition, right? Uh, but I think there's, a little, there's something that I wanted to at least mention is that there's an idea found throughout the Bible that we are God's people and thus representatives of God, much like the priests. And so we're representatives of God to those who don't know him. And that's kind of referencing 2 Corinthians 5.20, or paraphrasing it, I guess. Uh, to specifically sum it up in a verse, we have 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So doing good will glorify God. Especially when we're representing, or representing him to those who don't know him. So how can sharing uh, with others honor God? And that would be when we give without the intent of, for recognition or personal recognition for it. In Matthew 6.22, so when we give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And also, the verse that we talked about, David, where David said, I'm not going to give a sacrifice without it actually costing me something. And... I don't think we can actually settle. We, we start talking about giving, and a lot of times everybody thinks, oh, give offering in the church. And 
Um, I think um, C.S. Lewis summed it up very well when he wrote Mere Christianity. And um, he says, I do not believe we can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard of common among those with the same income as our own, we probably are giving away way too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. So there's not any real hard and fast rule in the New Testament for how much we should give just more our attitude when we should be giving. But uh, I really like C.S. Lewis's words uh, there as far as what we should be giving or how much we should be giving. So I don't think it necessarily needs to be said in too much detail, but God deserves our honor, right? Um, and there are actually several references about how God is great, and he is deserving and worthy of our honor. Um, one that I just wanted to say was Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, our, our Lord and God, to receive the glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God is our creator, gives us life. Just in that by itself makes him worthy of our worship and honor, our respect. So we have all these ways to honor God in our prayer, praise, doing good, and sharing. And, but it all kind of has one main theme in, in common, right? And that's to place God above ourselves. That sounds obvious, but it's not that easy. <laughs> we're we're so, so used to tr being selfish, naturally selfish. Sinful desires is selfishness that we, we like placing ourselves above everything else, including God. And, uh, and really, a really, a good definition of honoring something is, again, placing that which you honor above yourself. And that, not so surprisingly, just happens to be the greatest commandment and the second which is similar, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. That is Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And, uh, and you, if you've heard my other sermons, you'll understand that I have actually brought up the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment in every other sermon. <laughs> so you might think that I at least feel that that is foundational to be, being a Christian and living a Christian life. And I do. That is core and central to how we should live our lives every day. So the last part of this passage, God also issues a judgment that cursed is a person who dishonors him. He says that if you have a blemish-free animal that you were going to give and then you just decide, well, I'm going to give this other animal that's diseased or lame or whatever, uh, you're cursed. And, uh, you know, that, that's a curse to that specific person or a curse to the Jewish people at that time, but it's a blessing for us 
a blessing for us in this church, in this age of the church in the New Testament, because that blessing or that curse set up the last blocks that God wanted to set up to then go quiet for 400 years and then have Jesus come and provide the path for his name to be honored across the whole world to allow for uh, the gospel to, to be spread, for God's kingdom to grow exponentially. But we should also pay attention to this curse because it is a warning today because there is a similar warning given to in the New Testament. And that similar warning can be found in Revelation three fifteen through 16 in the letter to the church to Laodicea. I know your works are, are, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't want to get into the details of hot and cold and what those might mean. It's more the fact that neither being hot or cold for God or Jesus has embedded in it this complacency, this uh, not honoring and placing God above yourself and God's wants. So... Um, it's certainly not honoring. And in respect, or in response, Jesus rejects the church. So in closing, I want to throw one last way to honor God, and that is to honor Jesus. We've talked about God the Father, and, and especially in the Old Testament, that's the focus, is how do we honor God the Father through the sac- or how are the the Old Testament Jewish people supposed to honor God the Father through the sacrificial system. But um, John five twenty two through 23 says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all honor the Son, or that all who honor the Son, oh man, I'm having a hard time here, okay. So, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, and who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we should honor Jesus and do all the things that we've already talked about in Jesus' name, right? We should pray, praise, do good, and share with others. And then that is how we honor Jesus as well. And I mentioned earlier the two greatest commandments has been in every sermon but there's also one other thing that has been in every sermon that I've, that I've preached on, and that's the, uh, the Great Commission. And I think that that is the best way that we can honor Jesus is following his command that he has given, uh, given us as his church, as his people. So as a reminder, we have Matthew 28, 19 through 20, which is the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always, to the very end of the age.